Well, good morning, friends. Welcome again to Bentonville Community Church. My name is Pastor Mark, and I'm excited to finish a sermon series we began a few weeks ago called Everyday Disciple. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to go there and, and you can uh, follow along. Uh, we'll be in verses 35 through 38. And uh, if you have the Bible app on your phone, it's really handy. You can open that up, click on events, and uh, you can find some notes connected to this teaching. And maybe that's something you'll want to save and refer to again. But we're going to explore God's Word together today in Matthew chapter 9. Um, and uh, we began this sermon series by just asking a pretty simple question. What are everyday issues that disciples of Jesus face? What are things that we need to be aware of or that we need to address? Um, and today on Pentecost Sunday, it's a, it's a great day to sort of finish this discussion. Because at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to understand our life is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit brings power. The Holy Spirit brings the comfort of His presence. And we need His Holy Spirit power every day in our lives. Uh, so if we're going to be these everyday disciples, we have to depend upon the presence of the Holy Spirit. So it's just great that we would end this discussion uh, or in this sermon series. We're going to continue the discussion, but in this sermon series on Pentecost Sunday. Um, a few of you will remember when this movie first debuted. Uh, most of us have probably only seen this movie in reruns or we've rented it or, uh, you know, streamed it at some point. But uh, we were first introduced to two characters that's become pretty iconic. Uh, does anyone know who Elwood and Jake Blues are? They are the Blues Brothers, made famous uh, by that movie in 1980. And uh, I would say this about the Blues Brothers. Um, it's a famous movie. It's pretty iconic. But most of us probably haven't seen the movie as much as we've seen people dress up like the Blues Brothers for Halloween. I can guarantee you somebody at your office Halloween party is going to dress up like this because it's just so easy. You go grab an old black suit, you get a white shirt, a black tie, a fedora, and find some sunglasses somewhere and boom, you've got your uh, Halloween costume for your office party. Um, so that's going to happen at some point uh, this coming Halloween. Um, but I'm not going to go into the plot of the movie other than to say uh, these, these brothers, Elwood and Jake, uh, they grew up in an orphanage, and the orphanage is in danger of being shut down. And the whole movie is this kind of musical and zany adventure of these guys trying to save this orphanage in which they grew up in. And it gives them all kinds of justification to like just run through the streets of Chicago and drive as fast as they can and to run away from the police. Um, and the character played by Dan Aykroyd, at some point in the movie, he says something that's become famous uh, in the movie. He's running from the police and his brother says, aren't you afraid of getting caught? And he says, no, because we're on a mission from God. We're on a mission from God. Now, you don't need a black suit or a fedora or a pair of cheap sunglasses to understand your life as on mission with God. We are all, because we're Christians, because we're followers of Jesus, we are by nature, just by the sheer fact that we are a follower of Jesus, we are on a mission from God. 
This is how Jesus set it up. This was the whole plan of redemption, that Jesus would come and show us what it looks like to live on mission with God, and then he would ascend to the Father, and then he would commission us to go and live that way as well. But he knows we can't do it on our own strength, and so Luke records this moment where Jesus ascends. And Jesus looks at the disciples right before he ascends back to the Father, and he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is those original disciples, they go back with the other believers, the ones who are now believing in Jesus as the Messiah and the resurrected Lord, and they gather in this room and they begin to do exactly what Jesus told them to do, to wait and to pray. And they're asking God to give the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in God's timing, on the day of Pentecost, which was originally a Jewish festival, on that day, the Holy Spirit descends and they hear this sound like a rushing wind. And then fire begins to remain on those that are are praying. And they are given power and ability that they had never had before. They go out from the upper room, filled with the Holy Spirit, and begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those in Jerusalem. They proclaim that this Jesus, whom you crucified, is both Savior and Lord. He is Messiah and He is Lord. And what's so amazing about it is these people who originally were scared after the resurrection, they were scared that what they did to Jesus, they were going to do to them, they're now filled with amazing power. Look at Peter. He would not even admit to a little servant girl that he was a follower of Jesus while Jesus was on trial. But then, now 50 days later, and filled with the Holy Spirit, having witnessed the resurrection, Peter preaches this amazing sermon. And the crowd says, as Peter's preaching, well, what shall we do? What is it you're calling us to do, Peter? And he said, repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And 3,000 people did. And the church was born that day on the day of Pentecost. So from the beginning, the church was an instrument to carry on the mission of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That was always God's intention. What we are doing in our life together, we are carrying on what Jesus began through his life, death, and resurrection. And as you think about the presence of the church in society, I want you to think about church capital C, how society perceives or understands the people of God. And I also want you to think about our local church, Bentonville Community Church of the Nazarene, the kind of life that we live in Bentonville, in northwest Arkansas, in this region. Let's ask ourselves a question that is what we need to ask every Pentecost Sunday. And that is, are we on mission with Jesus? Are we on mission with Jesus? As as you think about the, the primary thing, the first thing you think of when you think about Bentonville Community Church of the Nazarene, do you think about a people who are carrying on the mission of Jesus? That's an important question for everyday disciples. So one of the things we did for this series is uh, we sort of crowdsourced it. So there's a group of leaders that I trust, and they are our community group leaders. 
And they are leading these groups and helping these small groups of people to, to do life together and to live on mission with Jesus and to grow in their faith. And so I asked our community group leaders, I said, hey, what would be a good thing to address or what kinds of sermons do we need to have after Easter? And, and we sort of came up with this idea of an everyday disciple. And I asked them, what things should we address? What things would you like to see us address as we lean into what it means to be an everyday disciple of Jesus? And, and their responses have, have shaped the messages that we've shared over the last few weeks. But one community group leader said this. She said, there is a shortage of disciples engaged in mission in the church, in the church and outside the church. She asks, what is holding us back from engaging with God in his mission? What lies are we believing? Here are some of the lies and stumbling blocks that I think get in the way of us living out God's call to be an everyday disciple. And Satan uses these to keep us from being an effective disciple. And she lists these. Do they sound familiar in your life? Fear. Feeling unprepared. Inconvenienced. Understanding my faith is private and being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I appreciate that kind of leadership in our community group. I appreciate that kind of leader that's attuned to the mission of the church and calling at least her community group and people in her influence to be engaged in mission. And she hits on something that is so true. There is an enemy that is actively working against this mission. Satan does not want to see the mission of Jesus continued through the church. And so he gives us all kinds of reasons to not engage in mission and gives us all kinds of things to chase and to pursue so that we don't engage in what Jesus has called us to do. And maybe you resonate with some of that. Maybe you feel afraid or you've been paralyzed by this feeling of inadequacy and not being prepared. And maybe you just enjoy the convenience of not engaging in mission. Maybe you are afraid. Maybe you think faith is strictly a private matter that doesn't affect your relationships outside of church. Those are all feelings that the enemy wants you to believe and to have. But the good news of Pentecost, the good news of this day, is that the power of the Holy Spirit is all we need to accomplish the mission of Jesus. Every feeling you've ever had, every objection you've ever had, to the mission of Jesus is overcome by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all we need. If you've ever felt unqualified, the Spirit qualifies you. If you've ever felt like you're not good enough, the Spirit says that you are through His power. If you've ever felt like you can't do something, the Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting. And if you've ever felt ashamed or scared to share your faith or to have a spiritual conversation with someone, what we know is that God's Spirit is going ahead of us, preparing the way. We only need to step into that conversation in obedience. The Holy Spirit's all we need. And so that fact alone should alleviate our fear and our objection. So the question for the church today, having understood the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is to just say, well, what is this mission? What is it that Jesus was about and how should we be about the same things in our life and as we practice our faith? And Matthew chapter 9 is a great place to go to answer that question. We're going to walk through that very quickly in its entirety, but I want to read the end of it 
as Jesus goes about several things that un- unveil his, his mission in the world, he finally says to his disciples, let's read verse 35 of chapter 9. He said, or Matthew writes this, When Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they, har- they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So we're going to deal with what Jesus said there, and it's a lot to deal with. But before we do that, what's happening in Matthew chapter 9 that leads up to this moment? So to begin with, the chapter begins with Jesus announcing the forgiveness of sins over a paralyzed man. This man who's unable to walk comes to Jesus, and instead of immediately saying, well, you be healed, as he did in other places, he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And of course, this created an uproar. Who in the world has the power to forgive sins? And Jesus said, the Son of Man does. I do have this power. And not only do I announce the forgiveness of his sins, but the taking away of his shame and his guilt also results in his healing. And so the mission of Jesus is the forgiveness of our sins. He takes away our shame. He takes away our guilt. There's two characters in the story that have been marginalized, that have been shunned by society, and they both were on on the right and left spectrum of this. There's Matthew, the tax collector. He's in cahoots with the Roman government, and the Jewish people hate him, and so they exclude him from everything. But Jesus welcomes him in and calls him to be a disciple. And then there's, there's this woman who's had this issue of hemorrhaging, And it's excluded her from participation in worship because she's unclean. And Jesus stops what he's doing and heals her and restores her to the community. Friends, the mission of Jesus is radical hospitality to the marginalized. Those the world has forgotten about, those that the world has given up on, Jesus invites us to extend radical hospitality to them. There's, on on his way, Uh, this woman with this issue of hemorrhaging interrupts Jesus and he stops what he was doing. He was actually on his way to, to heal a girl who was sick. And in the midst of that, the girl dies. And Jesus shows up where the girl has died and he said to the crowd, she's not dead, she's just asleep. And they, of course, laugh at him. But then Jesus goes in and he pronounces a word over her and he raises her up from the dead. And friends, that's a picture of the mission of Jesus. Are there dead situations in your life? Are there broken situations? Are there things in your life that seem beyond repair that are completely dead? Jesus steps into those and he brings life out of death. And towards the end of the chapter, he has this encounter with not one blind man, but two. And he heals them. And and what Matthew is doing there by telling the story in this way is, is saying, you know, humans have two eyes. And a lot of times we have two ways of seeing things. And, and what the gospel does is, is, is it restores our complete vision. We are able to see the full picture of what God is doing. We are able to gain new perspective. And that's the mission of Jesus, to open our eyes to what is happening. Previously in this chapter, the Pharisees, they missed it. 
And Jesus said, it's not the sick, it's not the well who need a doctor, but it's the sick. These are the people that we go to. And even John's disciples, they came and they said, you know, are, are, we're not really sure about what you're doing and how you're going about it. And so, so Matthew has this story of, of the blind men, both, both the Pharisees and John's disciples. Not one blind man, but two. Not one eye, but both. Being opened up to what God is doing. There's new wine that God is pouring out and he invites us to receive it with new wineskins to, to, to open our perspective to what God is doing. And finally, the last thing that you see there in chapter 9 is there's a person who's unable to speak and Jesus heals the person that was mute so that they can proclaim the good news of Jesus. And this mission of Jesus is empowering us to proclaim the goodness of God, to share with those around us. And this, this is just an amazing chapter that just kind of lifts the lid up on what Jesus is doing and just kind of encapsulates it in one chapter. And in verse 35 that we read there, it's actually almost verbatim of Matthew chapter 4, verse uh, 23, where Jesus has just defeated the temptations of the devil. And now he begins his earthly ministry. And it, it, it's almost word for word, Jesus went through all the towns, the villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease. You see these, these, these bookends of what God is, is doing in Christ. The only difference is by chapter 9, he's had plenty of opportunity to gain some opposition. People see what Jesus is all about and they're not necessarily making sense of it. And he's especially receiving the criticism of the Pharisees and the religious elite in that day. And so Jesus has an indictment of them. These are the people that are supposed to shepherd the Israelites. They're supposed to lead the people to God. They're supposed to, if anyone should be able to perceive what God is doing in Christ, it should be these Pharisees. They knew the law upward and backwards and, and all around. And what Jesus said, what he lamented about the state of Israel in that time he said they're like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. And what Jesus is doing is pulling some imagery from the book of Ezekiel. Jesus would have been very familiar with the prophet Ezekiel. And what he's saying to those Pharisees and what he's saying to that crowd is they are like the leaders of the people in exile who failed to effectively lead the people the way God had called them to. Look at Ezekiel 34 verse 4. The prophet has this indictment. He says, You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. That was the state of Israel that ultimately led to their exile. And Jesus is saying to those Pharisees, You're doing the same thing. These people are like sheep without a shepherd. You're not leading well. You're not binding up the sick. You're not binding up the injured. You're not caring for those who are weak. You're not searching for the lost. And on this Pentecost Sunday, church, should we not ask ourselves the same question? Could this indictment be directed towards us? Because who is it in this society? Who is it in this culture that's going to call people to the ways of God? Who is it in this, whose mission is it to stand on the street corner, not necessarily literally, but 
figuratively, and in our spheres of influence, whose job is it for us to stand in those public places and proclaim a message of wholeness, of healing, of searching for the lost and binding up the injured? That, that's us. That's our calling. That's, that's our mission. It, could it be said of us? Could Jesus look at the 21st century America today? Could he look at Bentonville today? And would he have the same lament? Would he look at these people that he gave his life for, that he died for, that he suffered for? And would he say as an indictment against us, they're helpless like sheep without a shepherd? Would he say that? It depends on if we're willing to embrace his mission. So my friend Scott tells the story, and, and I'm going to share it with you. I probably won't do as good of a job as Scott does. But uh, he tells a story about working with an interfaith group in Los Angeles. Now, he was pastoring in L.A. at the time. And there was this group of people that were coming together to address some of the issues that L.A. faced. And it's a massive urban area in our country, and they've got all kinds of issues, lots of things for people to address. And so they were talking about hunger, insecurity, and homelessness, and all kinds of things that people of faith should probably be concerned about. And so they were putting this interfaith group together, and so there were Muslims and Jewish people and Christians. They were all coming together to say, what can we do together to make L.A. a more livable place and a, and a better place? And one of the Jewish rabbis was taking the leadership of, of this uh, commission. And rabbis have a, a really special gift for telling stories to frame certain problems and to help you see things in a new light. Um, Jesus sort of set the example for this. And so uh, the rabbi stands up before this interfaith group and he's taking leadership on it and he decided to tell a joke. And I think this joke is hilarious. Um, you will not find it as funny. But I'm going to tell it anyway because knowing that I'm walking into complete disaster has never stopped me before. And so the rabbi stands up in front of this interfaith group and he tells this joke. And he said, about 80 years ago, a group of Jewish people got together and they were really concerned about encroaching secularism. They were really concerned about the direction of the country and the things that were going on. And so this Jewish group got together and they convened a meeting and they did what people of faith do. They began to pray. They began to ask the Lord to give them direction and to help them address some of the things that were going on in the world. They were concerned about politics and they were concerned about the world of finance and business and they were concerned about the influence of media and Hollywood. And so they began to pray about these three areas of life. And after a time of prayer and discernment, this is what they resolved to do. A third of them said, you know what? We're going to run for office and we're going to change some things in politics. And so a third of them moved to Washington, D.C. The second third of them said, you know what? It's a good idea. We're concerned about business. We want to change business practices. And so they went back to school. They got MBAs. And a third of them moved to New York City. This final third said, you know what? We want to influence media. So we're going to go to film school. We're going to learn how to tell stories. And they moved to Hollywood. About 30 years later, there's a group of evangelical Christians been concerned about the same things. America was 
falling apart. Things were terrible. Secularism was encroaching all kinds of problems in the world. And so they did what people of faith do. They convened a meeting. And they prayed and they discerned and they, they asked God what he would have them do. And at the end of that time of discernment, sensing clear direction from the Lord, the entire group moved to Colorado Springs. If you have as much evangelical baggage as I have, that is hilarious. If, if you're in this as deep as I am and have been around this as long as I have, that is hilarious to you. Uh, if you have no clue what I'm talking about, I envy you so much. There's a lot of um, important, influential people in Colorado Springs. But the point is that for so long, we've, we've looked at what's wrong with the world. And we've said, okay, God, what do you want us to do about all these things that are wrong with the world? People have these alternative visions of sexuality. And they have these alternative visions of, of what politics is supposed to be. And they have this alternative vision for what the country is supposed to do. And, and there's all these things wrong with the world. And what are we going to do? And, and for too long, the, the, the primary posture of, and I can talk about this because I'm sort of one, but the primary posture of evangelical Christians have been to just yell at the world. And to proclaim about all that's wrong with the world. And it, we've taken a posture of what the 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr said, a posture of Christ against culture. That we are in this great war. And that the best thing that Christians can do is to sequester themselves away from all this bad stuff that's happening and then just offer critique after critique after critique of what's wrong with society and culture. So we've taken a position of, of Christ against culture. But Niebuhr says this is not the gospel. This is not the whole message of Jesus. The whole message of what Jesus is doing is transforming culture. And so the mission of the church is to transform our culture, to be in this world and to be in the muck and the mire of what's going on and in the midst of alternative visions for human flourishing to say, no, there is good news. There is a singular vision of what God has for human flourishing, and it is good, and it is beautiful, and it is true. And I'm standing here in the muck, and the mire, and the mess, and I'm saying, this is good news. Would you come? Would you fellowship at this table? All are welcomed, and here around this table, your life can be transformed and made whole. Oh, I, I thought it was awesome. I mean, that was like your chance to say amen. amen. <laughs> I, maybe I'm more excited about it than you are. That's the good news, friends. That's the good news. That's, what the, that's the mission of Jesus, to be a transformer of culture. To be a transformer of culture. And, and, and Ezekiel saw this. So he offers the indictment of the Pharisees and the folks at Colorado Springs, and he offers the indictment of them. And then he says, Ezekiel 34, verse 16, he says, he sees a vision of what God is going to do. He sees this vision of the good shepherd that's going to, to come. And he said, Ezekiel prophesies that this good shepherd's going to come, verse 16, 
And this good shepherd will search for the lost and bring back the strays and bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. And look at this prophecy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. See, Jesus said, you're you're helpless. You're like sheep without a shepherd. But I'm the good shepherd. I'm here to shepherd the flock with justice, to bind up the injured, to strengthen those who are weak, to search for the lost and to bring back the strays. This is what Jesus is coming to do. Friends, what about us? Are we ready to join with this good shepherd? Jesus said the harvest is ripe. The harvest is plentiful. Who's going to go into the harvest field and bring in the harvest? Matthew records that Jesus was moved with compassion. This word compassion, it shows up several times in Matthew's account of Jesus's life. And every time, it's amazing. Every time Jesus is moved with compassion, he does something. It's always followed by action. Matthew chapter 14, we read that Jesus has compassion and he heals. Chapter 15, the people are hungry. He has compassion on them and he feeds them. Matthew 18, he tells a story about a wealthy person and his servant runs up debt and the wealthy person has compassion and forgives the debt, which is a picture of God. In Matthew 20, he has compassion on those that are blind and now they see Compassion is always followed by action. And so how are we actively engaged in the mission of Jesus? How are we doing these things that Jesus did? Friends, it has to be more than just sharing something on Facebook or liking some, some, some story. There's some injustice that's happening somewhere and, and I'm going to like it. Actually, I'm going to hold my finger down a little bit longer and I'm going to love it to let everybody know that this is important to me. And I'm going to solve the issue here on my phone. And now all those hungry people are going to be fed. Now all those people that have been marginalized are going to be welcomed. Now all those people that have had racial injustice committed against them, it's all going to be solved because I held it down a little bit longer and I, I, I put a heart on it. Or actually, I put a hug on it to just let the world know that I cared. No, when we see compassion, when we see Jesus doing something, it, it's followed by, by action. And the plan of God all along, it's not as if the church is this, this kind of offshoot of what God wanted to do. Like the primary thing is Jesus, and then now we have this church that's just kind of a placeholder until Jesus comes back, which is kind of how we see it sometimes. Friends, don't you understand that the church is the continuation of Jesus's work. It was always the plan that Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he resurrects, he gives the Holy Spirit, and then he fills the church with his Holy Spirit to continue on his work. Remember our original vocation, Genesis 1 and 2, this world was created, God said it is good, and then he said to the man, steward the garden, work the garden, have dominion over the animals, look at life that is flourishing, Man, woman, enjoy this life that is, that is flourishing. Steward it. This is your vocation. But the man and the woman chose to rebel. And so what God did in Christ was not only forgive the rebellion, but to restore the original vocation. Now, filled with the Spirit, you continue on this work of stewarding the earth and working towards human flourishing 
And this gives God great pleasure that his mission and his purpose of redemption would be carried on by beings created in his image and redeemed by the blood of his son, filled with his spirit. That's us. That's what we get to do. And friends, it's the whole picture of our salvation. Let us not think that that the the cross and the resurrection was about this get-out-of-jail-free card that God gives to us. And, and I hear that the mortality rate is 100%. I, I think that's true. And, and let us not think that salvation is this get-out-of-jail-free card that you, we tuck away because, you know, mortality rate's 100%. You might need that one day. You might need to show that to God one day. Let us not think that is the whole picture of what God is doing in salvation. It is the forgiveness of our sins, the sanctification of our heart and setting us apart for mission, for carrying on the work of Jesus. I want to make a bold statement. Maybe you've never heard it before, but I'll defend this till my death. Our salvation is linked to our participation in God's mission. It's this serious. It's this serious, friends. It's not dependent. But our salvation, the whole picture of what God is doing, is linked to our participation in God's mission. I might even put it up on the screen because it's that important. Our salvation is linked to our participation in God's mission. If you want to know if you're growing spiritually, if you want to know if God is doing something in your heart and in your life, The question to ask is, how are you engaged in mission? How are you participating in Matthew chapter 9? How are you doing those things that Jesus did? Those everyday issues that happened every day for Jesus, they should be happening every day for us. What God is doing in salvation and saving us and sanctifying us and calling us, it's this whole picture that we participate in. If you've ever been stranded at the airport, which I know a lot of you have, you'll understand what I'm about to say. It's been several years ago now, but I don't know where I was off to, but, and I can't remember if it was business or pleasure, but I was stranded in the Charlotte airport, and many of you have spent many hours in the Charlotte airport, major carrier for one of our, you know, domestic uh, airlines, So there I was, and this thing had happened that the airlines like to call. Now, I don't know where they have theological justification for this, but but they've come up with this term. Insurance companies have come up with this as well. Again, I'd like to see their theological credentials. And I'm a doctor. I can ask for that, by the way. But they've come up with this term called an act of God. And when an act of God happens, they're responsible for nothing. They don't have to feed you. They don't have to house you. They don't have to take you where you want to go. They don't even have to be nice to you, it seems, because this act of God has happened. And so one of these acts of gods have happened at the uh, Charlotte, in the Charlotte area, and I can't remember if it was a lightning storm or a tornado or a snowstorm or what it was, but it was bad. And uh, every plane was parked at the terminal. Every plane, just walk down the terminal, just 737s parked at the, at the gates. And there were not people in those planes. All the people 
were in the terminal. And there wasn't enough food, and there wasn't enough water, and there wasn't enough customer service agents for this particular airline. There were lines everywhere. Everyone was upset. Everyone was disgruntled. And all that I kept hearing was from gate agents was, well, you know, this is an act of God. There's nothing we can do. I would tell you on that evening that God was not very popular <laughs> at, the Char at the Charlotte International Airport. And so I'm sitting next to someone, and we're just commiserating together about, you know, where we're not going tonight and what we're going to do and how hungry we are. And I had half a stick of gum, and I shared it with him, and that was about all we had. And he looked at me, and he said, so what do you do for a living? I was trying to think of all the different things I could say. Uh, I'm the executive director of a nonprofit. You know, but that, that would sound pretty good. But I told him. Uh, and uh, I had to reveal to him that my boss was responsible for this mess that we're in. Yeah. People were not happy. And here's why they weren't happy. Because planes were meant to fly. Planes were meant to take people to their destination. Planes were meant to deliver cargo. Planes were not meant to stay at the hub. Planes were not meant to be parked. Planes have a particular mission, and those planes were not fulfilling their mission. And church, welcome to the hub. I'm glad that you're here today. And I'm glad that you're much happier than all those people at the Charlotte airport that night. You laughed at about half of my jokes today, and, and I appreciate that. It's, it's good to be together. It's good to be together. We're here at the Hub. We've even got a new coffee shop, and it's great. There's a new flavor called Maple Spice. Try it after service. It's awesome. But friends, we were not, our mission is not to, to gather here in this place and just to think about how awesome it is to be here every week. It's necessary. We need to be refueled. We need to be refreshed. We need to change out cargo sometimes. We need to think about what we're doing and where we're going. It's important to get directions here, but we're meant to fly. We were created for mission. We were created to join with God in what he's doing to redeem the world. And we were created to partner with God to see lives flourish. So this is our calling today. Jesus said, the harvest is ripe. Who will go and work in the harvest field? And I'm asking the Lord of the harvest today. I'm saying, Lord, would you send us out? Would you send us out to be your hands and be your feet? Worship team is going to come and we're going to close this morning. Um, but I want to tell you about a, a moment that I remember that has changed my life. And, and, and I, I can't get away from this moment. I wasn't there, but I heard about it not too long after it happened. In, in the year 2000, there was a conference that was really getting off the ground. It's called the Passion Conference. And it was filled with college students and young people who were connecting with God in worship. And they were taking their faith to another level, and, and passion continues to be a really amazing movement today. But the passion movement was just getting off the ground, and really the catalyst of it was an address that was given in 2000 at the Passion Conference in Memphis, Tennessee. 
And the keynote speaker told this story, and I want to relay it to you. He said, three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason was over 80. She was single all of her life and a nurse by trade. She poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards was a medical doctor in the Twin Cities area, and on her retirement, she partnered with Ruby. Laura, at the time, was also pushing 80 and was traveling with uh, Ruby, going from village to village in Cameroon. As they were traveling, the brakes gave way on their vehicle, they plunged over a cliff, and they were dead instantly. After this happened, I looked at my congregation, and I asked them, is this a tragedy? Two women, both almost in their 80s, a whole life devoted to one idea, that Jesus Christ be magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. After and, and 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to live lives of retirement in places like Florida and New Mexico, these two fly into eternity while on mission with Jesus. I ask you again, is this a tragedy? And I said to my congregation, it is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. And this keynote speaker pulled out a copy of the Reader's Digest. And he opened up the story, and I'll read an abbreviated version of it. But you read the story of Bob and Penny. And this is all you need to know about Bob and Penny. Bob and Penny took an early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, golf, and collect shells. And he looks at the audience and he said, that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy. That we would spend some of the best years of our life having amassed wealth and resources collecting shells. That is a tragedy. And, and still to this day, there are people and organizations and corporations that spend billions of dollars every year telling you that's the dream. That's what you're working for. That's the ultimate goal that somewhere you might be somewhere collecting shells. And that is how you spend the rest of your life. And on this Pentecost Sunday, I would just say, like when we stand before the Lord, when this life is over, and God asks us, what did you do with that brief time you had on planet Earth? Do you want to say to God, have you seen my shell collection? Have you seen my golf swing? Is that what we want to say to God? Or do we want to say to God, it gave me great pleasure and joy and satisfaction to join with you in the mission of Jesus? And this keynote speaker looked at the crowd that day, and I think it's good for us today. And he said to them, don't 
waste your life. Don't waste your life.